www.cliffcentral.com Good morning and welcome to Disrupt with Mbumi Ntlapo. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, it is our first show. Um, very exciting to be on the platform, um, to be talking disruption with, uh, with the audience out there. And really this is an interesting topic because what we're finding is that um, by and large, all large corporates, small businesses, everybody's trying to become disruptive. But the question is, how do we define this phenomenon of disruption? Um, and, and to answer that question, we're going to be going on a journey, um, with, with our listeners and really exploring this topic from different angles. Um, we'll be talking to captains of industry, leaders of some of the most disruptive companies, um, operating in South Africa and even globally. Um, but also companies that are trying to reinvent themselves, companies that are trying to take on a different persona. And so we will tackle this topic with, uh, corporates as well, South African corporates, whether it be the banks, uh, whether it be your FMCG, your retailers So really exploring the depth and breadth of this topic with our audience In the studio with me today is the producer of the show um, She's smiling beautifully next to me Kels, how are you? Hey Mbumi, are you good? I'm very good Are very you excited? Good. Of course, of course um, You know, when we get to do um, shows like this on platforms like Cliff Central, it's always very exciting. Yeah. Um, our speaker, well, the, the, the person that was in studio with us the other day is Musa Kalenga. Yes. Um, very interesting, um, young man that we got to spend some time with. Unfortunately, he's not in the studio with us today, but we do have an interview that we pre-recorded. Um, but before we jump into the interview, um, Musa, I mean, you, you kind of had some dealings with him previously. Um, as a young person that, you know, latched on this disruptive energy very early on in his career and you working in the PR space, Kels, um, what do you make of that? I mean, is this something that you hear coming up often as you're out there doing events and dealing with your customers? Are they trying to be different? Are they trying to tap into this revolution? Um, definitely. Um, and even after the interview, I had the privilege to read his book, which is really, really, really amazing. Yeah. Um, so everything that he tackles and touches on, it's really, really impactful. So he is an amazing um, individual. I, I think everybody will really enjoy his um, interview today. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to this journey. You're looking forward to the journey. Yes. And in terms of the show, um, just before we, we get into the interview, in terms of the show, I mean, the types of guests that we want to bring to the show, you, you've been quite instrumental in putting together the list. Can you maybe tantalize the audience in terms of <laughs> maybe without giving away too many names, but the type of people that we want to that we want to have conversations with on this platform? I think the key word for this, um, to answer this is just we're looking for pioneers. We're looking for Great game changers, but people that are very immersive, that are very disruptive and that are creating an impact in the, like in the spaces that they, they're in. So I'm looking forward to chatting to all the CEOs, CMOs, uh, CMFs and yeah, and all the entrepreneurs. And all of that, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And so we'll be on every Tuesday from 9 a.m. immediately after the Cliff Central show for those that want to tune in. And of course, um, we will be publishing the podcasts. Before we want to, before we get started, we just want to say a big thank you to our sponsors, T-Systems South Africa, who really made it possible for us to be able to get all the guests, um, onto the show and, and really to make this platform possible. 
Um, so what we'll do now, we'll, we'll get into the interview, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to the discussion, and then afterwards we can then break um, for, a, for a deep dive into the conversation and just exploring some of the topics that came up. Uh, but do listen out for a discussion on, you know, move from entrepreneurship into corporate, of how to be an entrepreneur and to be disruptive even within a corporate, how to tackle those challenges. We'll unpack all of that in about 30 to 40 minutes or so. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us on Disruptive in Bumi Um Welcome to another very interesting and insightful discussion I'll be having with Musa Kalenga. Musa, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Mpumi. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for joining us. Um, I mean, really, today it's about a discussion. You know, we're going to explore together. We were speaking outside the studio about what you've been up to yep. from a business perspective. You left Facebook in January. That's correct. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what you've been up to, where you've been since before Facebook up until now? Before Facebook up until now. Yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting journey. So um, I started my first business leaving uh, a VITS uh, a number of years ago, which was called Munati Fellas. Um, and at that particular time, uh, that business was about trying to disrupt the research collection industry. Um, so a lot of big companies were commissioning research and data collection that took sometimes up to three months together. Um, and I served as the chairman of the Youth Advertising Board, and I saw the process was flawed, anyway flawed to me, because mobile phones were becoming a little bit more yeah. uh, accessible and people were using them. So I tried to put two and two together to say, well, why aren't we correct, uh, collecting data and research on, on mobile devices, basically? Um, and so that's what Munati Fellas sought to do in the beginning. We did kind of boutique research, um, so to solve specific problems for brands like Knickknacks, like Akdoko, we'll go out and we'd try and find young people to go into the field and uh, collect data and multimedia, which we'd interpret for, for our clients. Okay. Um, and the business then morphed into you know activations and all sorts of interesting things. Um, I then uh, did a bit of a merger uh, with uh, with uh, one of my really close friends and mentors, Tebe Kalafeng. Um, then he, he bought some of our business and I bought into a, a division of the brand leadership group, which was called IHOP at the time. So I became the managing director of IHOP. Um, we retired the Munati Fellas brand. Um, and the, the mandate essentially was to try and bring uh, IHOP into the digital age. Um, and at the time, IHOP was doing a lot of kind of publishing and eventing and that kind of stuff. So my passion was really in the digital space. So we started looking at um, how we're going to build propositions around online reputation management and social media and that kind of thing. Um, and that was uh, that was about a two and a half year journey, which was great. And then uh, um, then I was called by by NetBank um, to help them set up their group digital marketing um, team and capability. Um, and I started uh, as the head of group digital marketing there, which I uh, which I did for about three and a half years. Okay. So be- before you move forward to that, I just yeah. want to that was a bit of a turn. So you, yeah. so prior to that, you had been more of an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Okay, so moving into NetBank was your shift into corporate. Absolutely. If I can call it that. Absolutely. So, so let's just talk a little bit about you know prior to corporate yeah. because I think the corporate world is probably going to take us <laughs> down a different path. Sure. You spoke about wanting to disrupt the uh, research. The research um, did you use the term disrupt at the time? Or is it only now that you, yeah. you kind of coined it as just being disruptive or were you just doing what you felt needed to be done? Yeah, you're absolutely right. We didn't we didn't use that word at all. Yeah. Um, we were simply, in our minds, it was about, well, things have been done this way for so long and we were quite clear about what the shortcomings were mm. um, and we needed to come up with a different proposition, um, a proposition that meant you can collect data in a lot quicker way, um, a proposition that meant that you're able to get a higher quality data and you're able to get to a bigger audience. Um, so at the time, no, we didn't coin it as disruption. We just thought, you know, this is doing things better. Um, and for 
unfortunately, you know, the, the industry as well as data collection has, has moved more into that way anyway. Um, but at the time, we, we were just trying to improve of what we saw as a really kind of archaic and quite expensive uh, process, to be quite honest. We were a small business at the time. It was myself, you know, with my laptop and my backpack. Absolutely, um, yeah. To go and get all the money together to put field agents and all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, who has? Who yeah. has that? Yeah. And, and was there resistance? Uh, to to the concept, I mean, obviously, yeah. to do research, you're dealing with organizations, corporate sometimes. So, I mean, what yeah. was the yeah the feeling I, about what you wanted to do, the approach? I think the resistance was more industry. So, like the stalwarts, the guys that had been there for the long time, and they you know they knew research. What is this young black thundercat going to show us about research type resistance? But I think our approach was focus on specific clients that believe in the value proposition and uh, get them to see what we're trying to do. So, from a client perspective, I don't. I don't think there was resistance. I think there was hesitation because we were trying to do something new. But when we started to give them an understanding of kind of the, the costs, the, the value savings, when we started to give them an understanding of the quality improvements, that was you know that was quite an easy sell. Um, the resistance, you know, as I said, primarily came from the people that have been doing it for this way for ages. Um, and over time, we kind of overcame and we had lots of conversations. And you know, the stuff we had to do, the stuff I had to do to make sure that uh, I had them on my side. And you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a, a fight anymore, but more of a journey together. But uh, it was industry more than clients that were resisting at the time. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Mm. And, and then you moved into um, M and A activities at you know at whatever scale it was at the time. Yeah. What drove you? I mean, having that entrepreneurial flair mm. to then make a decision to buy into mm. someone else's business, which in effect was their vision. Yeah. Um, what would move you to that at that stage in your career? You're still relatively young at the time. Yeah, there was a few things. Um, so. I, I'm from Zambia originally, so when I came to South Africa after 94, I, I naturalized as a South African after 94. Okay. And the B legislation didn't quite define me as fully black. Um, so when it came to trying to get work out of government and parastatals, um, our business didn't qualify on a number of occasions. Okay. Right? So that was a huge impediment to growth. So we could only get three to six month contracts, which is difficult to do if you're trying to, you know, build scale. Uh, that was number one. The option we had, go out and partner with someone, bring someone on to, you know, Kind of bolster and, and you know equalize those BE scores, but we just didn't find the right partners. Most people were coming on with not really an understanding of what we were trying to do. We were a small business. I was really young. Our team was you know um, was quite young, so we couldn't afford to pay you know a million rand salaries. But we really needed someone to partner with. So yeah. so that was the one thing. Um, the second thing is we as a as an organization employed really young people. Um, so I think I must have been twenty three, twenty four at the time, and I was the oldest person there. Wow. Um, so there was a lot of young, and there was about ten of us at, at the height of the business. Um, so what I wanted to do as part of the mentorship program that was kind of ingrained into how we did business is I wanted to give them an option to experience a more corporate um, aspect of what we did. Um, so brand leadership represented, as I said, with Tebe, he was my mentor. Um, and so the business relationship was that some of the people that worked with me, the young guys, who've gone on to be amazing you know, in their own rights, um, they had the opportunity to go and work on kind of big accounts like Praza, like Transnet, like the more kind of corporate accounts okay. as a bit of a value exchange. And they'd learn more from those environments and, and, and we'd get them back as a better product and their careers would grow. So that was the second thing. Um, and last but not least, I think, you know, we were solving a lot of problems in the FMCG space with youth and stuff that was really close to our hearts. And I think from a, a challenge perspective, I wanted to open that, uh, that up a little bit more. So dealing with, as I said, more corporate brands forces you to think in a slightly different way. Um, and, you know, as, as, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're always trying to find, you know, better ways to challenge yourself. So I think those are the factors from our business that were driving us to try and figure out 
a, a partnership or a relationship that could take us to the next level. Um, and those are the factors that drove us to, you know, to have the conversation and eventually do the, 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 the merger with, with uh, the brand leadership group. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you did. BEE, but within BEE, <laughs> yeah, as it were, which, which which is something we can we can tackle, yeah. I guess, in another conversation. Yeah. But I think we need more of that kind of stuff, actually. Yeah, yeah absolutely, um, happening amongst people. So then, then you moved into corporate yes. um, at the time, NetBank, heading up their digital uh, marketing department. Yeah, can you talk us through a little bit about you know for some of us that don't understand what this digital marketing thing is yeah. and and how you made the decision then to move into a corporate? Yeah, so I think there was a there was a few f- uh, factors. So towards the, the tail end of my relationship with uh, um, with the brand leadership, and I, I write about it a lot in my book, um, was kind of for me what I think was a big lesson in business. Um, so you know, Teb and I had a great personal relationship. We were, um, you know, we were worked really well at arm's length. Um, you know, but when it came to working closely together, yeah. um, that was a different dynamic altogether. So um, on paper, it made sense. It was like a Jay Z Kanye deal. This old guy who had done all this stuff, this yeah. young Thundercat coming through. So it made sense, yeah. right? Um, but when we started working together. I think we missed a we missed a step. We didn't synergize on vision. So, you know, I wasn't entirely clear on what his vision was for IHOP, and I had a very clear idea of what I want to do with IHOP. So, him being a founder, I'm being a founder, and we're pulling right, and but we're pulling in different directions. Mm. So, 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 it eventually became quite frustrating to be honest, because our environment changed a lot. Um, I wasn't having as much fun as I was having uh, with, with Monati Fellas. Um, you know, the, the culture of our organization had to adjust and had to change, and it was difficult to hold it together. Um, so, there were a lot of things. That that you know eventually played out that for me kind of resulted in me asking the question about whether I was happy and whether I was adding value um, and I was quite fortunate you know towards the end when I was asking these questions and we have a very transparent relationship Tim and I, um, I and I walked into his office and I said look man this is you know it's, it's not really working the way we both thought it was going to work um, and I suppose one of us is going to <laughs> going to have to go and I doubt that's going to be you yeah. um, so uh, so I made the decision that I, you know that I'd be walking away um, and I, in the process actually I was pitching for a lot of business with Nedbank, and they were giving me pushback all the time. You know, I'd been courting them for like nine months, you know, and I was pitching, and they were loving what we were saying, but they just weren't converting. Mm. Um, and then I had a conversation with uh, with a, uh, the executive who joined uh, Sydney, Sidney Mbele, uh, still a good friend of mine. Um, and he said to me, Look, a, re- a big reason why we, they can't convert none of the conversations is they didn't have much capacity in, internally in their business. So then he said to me, Why don't you come and help us um, build that capacity? And to be honest, my first reaction was, Nah, man. And I, this job thing, yeah. I'm not sure about. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I felt like uh, and ties. Yeah, I don't know how this is going to work. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, and 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 I and I, and I politely declined. Um, and he called me back um, a week later, and he said, "Look, man, let's just you know, let's talk about this thing." Um, I met him, up, you know, for coffee and. Uh, you know, we we had you know banter and the rest of it, and he said to me, "Look, man, think about this. Just come and give it a bash." And I said to him, "Sid, like, what am I what am I going to come and do at NetBank?" And he's like, I, "I don't know." And I said, "Well, you know, what's my job description?" He says, "I don't know." He says, uh, and so those kind of answers started to you know tickle me a little bit because that's what an entrepreneur is looking for. Is like, I, I'm not interested in you giving me a job spec. I, you know, if you need me to deliver something, tell me what need, what it needs to be done. And I'll do it. Um, so so after the conversation, I kind of thought to myself, "Shucks, you know what? It's a interesting opportunity to be." 
35 years old and, and be in a position where you can go and work to build a team in an organization like this, number one. Yeah. Number two, you know, as a lot of entrepreneurs out there will know, especially the younger ones, um, there's generally this thing about entrepreneurs not being able to, you know, build businesses that become formal and structured because they've got this like a rogue ability and all this rogue capability. So I thought, what will, what will it be like for me to be in a structured environment? What, yeah. you know, what the pros and cons? And lastly, because of the sheer pain and irritation of having sold so much to corporates over so long and not understanding why it takes so long to approve things, why do things move as the pace they do? I actually just wanted to see what was, you know, what was behind all of that stuff. Um, and then I went home and I called some of my mentors, uh, you know, who I, who I take advice from and they said to me, you've got very little to lose. Um, you know, if you take this job, you may hate it and you can leave. If you love it, you know, you never know. And my kind of my inner self, my inner Musa was kind of going, look, if you, if you get to 45 and and you think to yourself, I should have tried it. Then I'm going to be, you know, really remorseful. So I thought, you know what? Let's give it a shot. Okay. Um, and that's that's how I uh, I ended up uh, at Nedbank, and it was an amazing, amazing experience. I had a great leader in in Sydney, in Bella. Shout out. He's he's still to this day one of the guys I take my hat off to in the marketing industry because he allowed me to do what I was good at. I know for a fact that the entire business at Nedbank were like, Are you sure about this guy? <laughs> <laughs> he's young. He's like a, he's a, you know he's unpredictable. Yeah. He's going to come. He's going to. But he was. Like, look, this guy's going to deliver, and unfortunately, we had some amazing success while I was there. So that was uh, that's how I got to NetBank. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And then post NetBank, um, yeah. where did it go? Um, in terms of your journey from there? So post Nedbank, um, I spent uh, three and a half uh, amazing years there. I, uh, we got to launch uh, the Nedbank app suite. We got to do awesome stuff with the website. We got to play around with great content with Coach Ningan, um, who was the first character we brought into a mainstream bank that was like a really um, grassroots, accessible kind of figure that people took to. Mm. So we did lots of crazy things. Um, but the challenge as, as, as an entrepreneur sorry, is that you move quickly. Um, and I moved very quickly. So within nine months, my team essentially was set up mm. and I essentially made myself redundant because that's what, that's what we do as entrepreneurs. And it was a, it was a huge, once again, another corporate lesson is that corporate uh, people in corporate positions, um, tend to design their teams to need them so that they're indispensable to the yes. business, right? Uh. And, and an entrepreneur doesn't think like that. An entrepreneur thinks, how can I make these people not need me yes. so that I can go do other things? I have right? more time to do what I want to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I was, went there with an entrepreneur ment- mentality. So set up the team, great guys, got everything going, and I was asking, what now? What next? Unfortunately, the business just wasn't there yet. So, um, so I went, they paid for me to go do an MBA. I think it was a bit of a bribe, so I did that. I came back, asked a lot of questions, tried to figure out if there was the way we could pivot and shift the business and there was just really amazing opportunities in financial so there still is um, but it required a very different mentality and the business wasn't ready okay. um, and I, I, I fortunately got uh, got a call from well, it wasn't a call at the time I got an inbox on LinkedIn um, from uh, one of the uh, recruiters at, at Facebook in Dublin and I thought it was a bit of a joke so I didn't I didn't respond initially um, and then they called me and they said uh, you know we've, we've sent you a message on LinkedIn and I thought okay well I better look at the message um, and I responded and um, set up some interviews and uh, and Bob's your uncle a couple of weeks later about seven or eight interviews later you know I, I was I was given the job and it was very entrepreneurial once again it was uh, the ability to start a team and get things running here so, so that's how I ended up uh, crossing over to Facebook fantastic thank you mm-hmm. so I mean you know here on the show we we tackle this subject of disruption mm-hmm. um, and that's why I, I, I latched on to the statement you made about wanting to disrupt at yeah. the time. And so maybe 
Can you, in in your words, you know, maybe elaborate for me about what is your understanding of where disruption fits into the marketing space? Um, one and two, how you see it playing out in the context of South Africa being on the African continent? I found a very cool quote recently. Um, I'll try to paraphrase it. It it, it goes something along the lines of, um, "Don't tear down fences before you know why they were put up." Um, and in the context of disruption, I think it's a very important and a mature view on how we should approach this this topic. Yeah. I really think it's it often gets bandied about a lot, and it's you know it's quite a it's quite a nouveau riche term at the moment. Absolutely. But I think it's important to understand the thing that you're disrupting and why, because disruption for the sake of disruption is also extremely uh, dangerous, and it can be uh, it can be detrimental. So. My understanding of disruption is that, you know, in an environment where you face the number of different challenges and or a status quo, um, you know, a way of doing things, as an example, I think we all have the responsibility to look at those environments and try and figure out if there are ways that we can do things or improve them. Um, at its core, disruption is about value creation. You know, it's about. You know, whatever is happening now is happening for a reason. And that reason is based on historical value creation. Um, disruption in its cause about how you create future value. And that may be, you know, doing things differently. It may be tweaking something slightly. Um, but it's about creation of value. And if, if we, uh, you know, if we incorporate that, especially from a marketing perspective around how we approach our communication strategies, how we approach how we segment, uh, how we approach how we strategize, um, I think it gives us a, a different and a fresher way of approaching, uh, of approaching, uh, uh, marketing as a discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there is an immaturity that happens um, around disruption, and it's just like pull the latest and greatest thing and do it, and that's disruption. And I don't think that's it at all. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, it's preceded by a lot of reflection and deep insight around what is wrong with your business, um, and then then following that, you know, it, it may not necessarily be the big thing. It might be, as I said, an adjustment, a simple change, and that could be in itself disruptive. But do, do we not face the challenge that you know, by and large, South Africa is is run by the large corporates. So they're the chief employers um, and in effect they hold the majority of the value that sits in in our economy. Mm. And that in effect then it's not easy for them to say we can see that something's wrong in our business. Yes. And and so for them to take on the the challenge or mm. to take on a company like Manate Fella that says I've got this new disruptive way mm. um, of doing business mm. that it becomes very challenging because you're sitting in a scenario where they're making lots of money yeah. and, and things are actually going well yes. so why would they want to change the status quo I mean absolutely. Is, is that not a I guess a paradox that that we live with in this world of, of disruption as it were absolutely um, yeah and and you're quite right they're big corporates um, not only are they very used to doing things they they the way they've done them um, they run by a Accountants who are extremely logical individuals yes. who, if there's something is working, don't try and uh, don't try and break it. So, I think the the reality is when you're in a situation or an environment that is traditional and has always done things the way um, they have, the response to disruption typically comes from number one, things have changed so drastically in the market and now they're facing this pressure, or number two, internally your business is just suffering. Share prices are going down, people are unhappy, you're losing money. So, unfortunately, often. The impetus to try and uh, become disruptive um, gets thrust upon big business, but it's often too late when that happens. Absolutely, right? yeah. Um, and I think it's a responsibility of entrepreneurs as well as executive leaders in those businesses to be a step ahead of that. Um, and I'll refer to the banks again broadly. I mean, I, I was I was very vocal about the fact that I thought banks, as a concept and a construct in South Africa, were dead. Mm. Um, not because you know I wanted to jump on the bandwagon about you know where things are going, but if you look at the way a bank is created. 
created um, in South Africa and the stronghold of the top five banks, they were never, ever designed to be consumer-centric. They were never designed to be your best friend. They were never designed to have two-way communication. Therefore, right down to the technology architecture, um, it was never designed for that. So what you see is you've got this old technology that sits on the base, and now you've got this new thinking about let's integrate, let's give a single view of client, let's yeah. do all these wonderful things, but the base technology is broken, right? So unless you're going to burn everything down and start again or spend millions upon millions, which all, all banks do, trying to patch up to make it work, um, you're actually not going to get anywhere. The ultimate result is that there's a lot of uh, what I call uh, lip service that happens around um, how they feel about customers and how they show up in customers' lives, which I often think is just smack, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, because if you look at the actual value proposition, it, it doesn't reflect that at all. So, And I, and as I said, I, I hold some of that responsibility with the executives as well as the nature which they cultivate entrepreneurship in the business. And it's not sufficient to have a little hub um, that you call the innovation hub or have a little center where you you know you do the social media. That's not sufficient. Um, you have to drive that kind of thinking uh, you know, from the corporate and from the executive level. And if that thinking is not at that level, it's going to be very difficult to do the bottom-up thing, which I tried to do for a number of years at NetBank. Yeah. Um, and while people appreciate the fact that they need to do things differently, while I got lots of audience to tell them about how we should be thinking about the future, they just the variables were not in my favor. So there wasn't a sufficient state of emergency, as I call it. So the share price was doing okay. Um, market share was kind of agreed and we're okay to keep it the same. Let's not mess with each other if and be absolutely, yeah, cool, cool, let's keep it. You know, so there was a, there was this guy, irritating person called uh, Capitec who was kind of creeping up in the background and yeah. now he's subsequently taken over, but we weren't too worried about them. So everything was okay. Um, so when you talk about, guys, we need to change, everyone nods their heads, but there really isn't any, you know, there isn't really any state of emergency. So I think in that environment, it's easier for them to, to, to innovate because then it's innovate or die. Absolutely. But I think, and as I say, I've said this before, by the time it gets to that point, I, you know, I think it's too late often. So, you know. And, and now, and, and I'm tackling this because I'm, I'm trying to understand what is it that you then take from a, a corporate environment mm. and then move back into an, an entrepreneurial environment. Mm. You know, in, on one end, you have potentially all the capital you need to mm-hmm. make those things happen mm-hmm. to, to, and then on the other end you're kind of dealing with how do I build this thing almost from the bottom up yeah. um, so what what is that transition been like then coming out of a big corporate I mean Facebook as entrepreneurs they are, they're pretty much a corporate now absolutely right? they've got Dublin regional quarters mm-hmm. and now coming in back to doing your own thing how, how's that transition been it's been great I, I like feel like I'm back in my, my lane to be very honest um Facebook is an all-encompassing business. Um, you know, it's one of those that you get in there and you drink the Kool-Aid and you believe it, man. I have never believed as much in a business as I did in Facebook, to be very frank, um, which I think is a great thing. But what I then realized as I've stepped away from it um, is that it almost it almost creates a cocoon in which you see the world and you're at the front and you're at the cutting edge and you all of that, but you actually don't stop to think about everything else that happens in the what I call the real world. So the experience that I, that I had is, you know, for once I was able to take all the theory I read about at business school and all the Harvard business reviews that you read about moving fast and innovation and breaking things and da, 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 and all that kind of stuff and you see it playing out on a daily basis in terms of how in, in the business yeah absolutely how yeah. our engineering business moves at the speed of light how our sales business is trying to change and iterate and, and, and try different things and turn things around quickly and so all of that I, you know you see happening um, and those lessons for me are quite important because it is possible you know when you read it in Harvard Business Review it's kind of there right it's you know they've done it and it worked there but when I was in it it's like okay well this is how it works and with that comes the understanding of the consequences um, of being able to move fast because it's 
it's not all gravy when you're at the speed of light. Absolutely. There's stuff that breaks at the speed of light. Yeah. So what I've taken from that experience is some of those things. Um, there's been huge cultural learnings for me as well. Uh, Facebook as an organization, multicultured, multi-ethnicity, multi-whatever it is that you can think of. I mean, you just have amazing people from different parts of the world. And I've realized now more than ever the value of having different people in one team. Okay. Um, you know, especially in the context that we are in now. It is, you cannot ever afford to have the same kind of people in a team. It just doesn't, you know, you can't build a truly global business like that. Um, yes, there's a lot of teething issues. There's a lot of cultural confusion. There's a lot of things that you won't understand about this person. But if I'm the best at what I do and you're the best at what you do, um, it kind of figures itself out. Um, so, so I learned that. And so the businesses I want to build now uh, will be quite heavily focused, or focused on culture or building a culture or creating a culture of inclusivity um, and involving the best people to be able to solve the best problems. Um, and then last but not least, I think it's a highly systemized business. Um, it, it, uh, from the outside, it may have looked at, oh, da, da, blue, you know, got great canteens, you can go and have lunch, ah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is very, very systemized. Do they even have offices in South Africa? They do. Yes, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> they do. I didn't even know Facebook was in South Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it's like a portal somewhere, you fill in stuff. Yeah, no, no, they have, they have, a, they have an office here. We How many employees? Uh, there should be, I think, 10 or 11 now. Okay, it's a very yeah. agile team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Growing quite, 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 quite big soon as well. So, okay. um, so, so the, the value of process and the value of systems is for me, when I was at Nedbank, I remember all the things that I had to do actually either irritated me or didn't give me a result at the end of it, a positive result. Okay. Um, so it felt bureaucratic. But when the systems actually deliver on outcomes, then it's a different thing altogether. Absolutely. So they have really rigorous systems for everything. But the ultimate, whatever you get out of it is valuable. Um, and that's a different way of dealing with the system. So, um, so I learned that. And it was a comparison. As I said, I looked at what I experienced at, at uh, NetBank, which was, yes, absolutely bureaucratic, all that kind of stuff. Mm. I looked at Ned, uh, Facebook, which I thought wasn't going to be, which was, but the fundamental difference is that the systems work for you here versus uh, a NetBank, which they just didn't. So let's talk a little bit about systems because naturally, you know, discussions about disruption would, would lean towards a technology bias. Yeah. Um, if, if I put it to you to say technology and disruption results in a net loss of jobs, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm proposing it to you and that um, in a South African context, it's not necessarily aligned to some of our key objectives from a, an economic development point of view. So, you know, um, I mean, I don't know what Facebook's revenues are, but I can, in South Africa, but I, I can assume they're significant. And they're achieving those significant revenues of 10 people because they're highly systemized, highly processed, offshore, many things all over the world. Mm. So the net gain to South Africa is maybe not what it would be with a large bureaucracy like NetBank, which employs a lot of people and has got a lot of mm. you know, systems, processes and buildings, and it really keeps the economy humming. What is your response to that as someone who's obviously trying to live on the edge of this disruptive curve mm. and driving new ways of doing business? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, before I answer, so once again to disclaim, I'm not, my views are no longer those of Facebook. Of course not. Of course not. Of course not. No, no. <laughs> no are they of, of NetBank. Um, or Monatifel. Well, that is, I can still own now with that. No problem. <laughs> um, so, so I, I tend to agree and I tend to disagree. So I agree because that statement holds true. If the skills that you have and are producing are low, uh, a low end skills, right? So technology, 
can it's easy for a robot to screw a screw into 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 a car part or into a table, okay. right? Um, because it doesn't take much of a skill uh, for someone to do that. Um, the higher you get in terms of the strata of intelligence and understanding and problem solving and that kind of thing, it is a little bit more difficult to just replace human beings with with robots, right? Mm-hmm. The challenge then is from an economy perspective: Are we producing the right kind of skills such that they won't be threatened by kind of this impending technology? And two, given that we know that we aren't and that there's a gap already, what is the right pace for you to move at so you don't break the economy based on low uh, low skilled labor, um, but you're able to build them to the point that we can maximize those skills? Um, so a business like uh, you know like the technology any of the technology businesses, they've got a, they employ a lot of people. Um, yes. Yeah, I think it's thirty thirty five thousand people that. Facebook employees. So it's not like they don't employ people. Yes. Um, you know, but the the caliber of the people is is a high skilled uh, group of individuals. Um, do we need bolt shifters and fasteners and that kind of thing? No, we we generally don't. Um, um, not because we are saying we don't want them. We're saying because there's technology that does it better. Um, and that's an extreme example of the word in South Africa, where we produce a lot of stuff out of the ground and we do a lot of agriculture and farming and mining. Can we move to the point where we systemized and technology techno- techno- Technologized, listen to that, yeah. and technologically, technologically enabled our agriculture. We can, but is it going to happen overnight? No. Um, so, so the theoretical debate is: yes, over time, menial tasks can be performed generally better than a computer, um, uh, than a, than, a, than a human being by a computer. But the responsibility is: how do we create a pipeline of people that are going to be able to fit into the more high skilled um, category? And what are we going to do with the low end laborers that are going to, at some point, have to make? We're going to have to make a call about what to do with them. Yeah. And I think it's a huge discussion it's a huge conversation it's not it's not single faceted um, but the responsibility doesn't sit squarely on the shoulders of, of, of you know of any company it's a it's a multi-pronged uh, approach mm-hmm. I think a big part of it is awareness I don't think by any square uh, stretch of the imagination corporate SA is not aware I think they're very aware I don't think by any stretch of the ma- uh, imagination government is not aware what I think is is not happening is that that awareness is not converting into into actions that are tangible and that are showing us that things are happening to be able to mitigate and or try and manage some of those risks. Um, And I know kind of the black industrialists uh, move on the punt um, is one of the kind of thrusts towards making sure that, yes, we are producing and we're producing in a way that we can balance our labor technology dependency. Um, But, you know, whether that will take uh, take shape in the next five to ten years, a lot of people are doubtful, you know. Mm. Um, And what else is happening if that's not going to be the thing we're hanging our hat on? And that's where then entrepreneurship becomes a big 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 holder of the responsibility. Sorry. Mm. And, and as someone who's kind of grown up in this in this marketing in this uh, disruptive world, yeah. and you know, there's a lot of talk now about millennials. You know, we like to coin phrases. So there's, there's, let's talk about the millennials that are that are coming through the system and, and the demands that they put on us as potential employers or, or mentors, whatever it could be. Yeah. Are we preparing them adequately for for the world in which they're going to exist going forward? Mm-hmm. Um, in your opinion, and can you just share some your thoughts in that regard? I mean, you've studied through the ranks. I mean, you came through high school, university, mm. you've done an MBA. So you've kind of had the full academic treatment, mm. if I can call it that. Mm. And you've also had, to, to a large extent, the full corporate and entrepreneurial treatment. Mm. So I guess you've got a, a view yeah. somewhere in between there. What, yeah. what is that view? 
my view is I think we're frustrating uh, younger employers and younger value adders um, in general. Uh, when we were running Monati Fellas, I remember our HR policy was not an HR policy because we didn't have, and this is an extreme example, we didn't have labor contracts. We didn't have any. In fact, our entire hiring process was quite fluid. Uh, it was literally, hi, Musa, hi. Um, I think I can add value to your business. Great. What are you going to do? Uh, I don't know. Come spend a day at our business. If you can figure out what you're going to do over a week, then we, that's what you're going to do. That's literally how I hired people. Um, And young people at that point wanted that kind of thing. What that automatically does is it takes the responsibility off me to make you love what you do, right? So you're coming in and you're saying, I want to do this. And I'm going, "Mm, is that going to add value to the business? If it is, good. We've got a psychological contract. You're going to do that and I'm going to expect you to do that and I'll pay you to do that. The point you break that psychological contract is quite easy. We never had disputes. We never, in fact, I think one person left voluntarily because they weren't able to do what they they thought they were going to do because young people want to feel like they own what they're doing. And if they don't, um, that's why they dabble in lots of stuff. They're busy after hours doing this and then because they're not fully engaged with what they do. So what typically a, a corporate environment does is it takes that mentality and it says, you're not allowed to do that. You must do what is on this job description. So you come to work and you do what is on the job description. And over time, that kills your spirit. It kills your creativity. It kills all these things. And you start looking for ways to try and find those outlets outside of the, the workplace. Um, secondly, the way young people work is very different. I, to this day, don't understand some of it, but it's just the way they work. So, you know, you get young people who are just not productive during the day, like physically not productive. Sure. Um, and uh, corporate is, you know, you come at eight and you clock out at five. Um, and between eight and five is probably my worst time to be doing anything. Um, so what if I work better between six and 12 and I can have better level of output in that time than the eight hours you're forcing me to sit behind this desk? Yeah. Um, and it's the reality of how young people operate and, uh, and corporate doesn't allow for that. So businesses that are slowly starting to realize that those nuances are how you get value out of young people are the ones that are really getting uh, getting ahead. Um, and unfortunately, the majority still aren't realizing that because, as I said, there's, there's, there's bean counters at the top and there's people who have done this thing for all these years who are sitting at the top and yeah. they're not willing to make those changes. So ultimately, as I said, what we're creating is a really frustrated millennial workforce. Um, and what you'll see typically playing out is a lot of them will probably be quitting their jobs and going to travel a lot and quit their job and try and, try, you know, try and get something off the ground. And they've got this amazing confidence, which I don't know where it comes from, Absolutely. but it's just innate. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can do anything and everything. I think it's great, but at the same time, there's a you know there's a part of learning and understanding that we need to not lose sight of. Um, but then again, our mentorship agreements within the corporate environments also don't speak to that. I mean, I felt very much when I was at Nedbank, I I, I didn't identify with the brand as a, as a as a young black person who was looking at could I stay here for another ten years and get a nice green tie and a, a golden cup. I was like, nah, that doesn't appeal to me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, what appeals to me? Creating value, looking for great opportunities, unlocking, and that is a different mentality to saying I'm willing to stay the you know stay the ten years and just get a corporate tie. Mm. So so yeah. you are more tied to the individuals and the people, absolutely in the process as opposed to you know necessarily the, the corporate whichever corporate or, or brand yeah. it might it might have been at the time yeah absolutely and and even to this day i mean i i i now understand when people say people people join organizations uh people join people and they leave organizations so yeah if, if you if you if you love the leader and you love the person that you're working for you'll join yeah exactly and the probability is you'll stay longer um and if that person creates an enabling environment and that comes down to another level of you know the management layer um within corporates you know do they understand how to manage millennial 
Daniel Talent? Do you know what fundamentally motivates Friki does not motivate Usipo? Mm. Um, do you understand that? You know, mm. and, and I don't think there's that level of understanding. Mm. Um, there's a core. I think there's a term in, 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 in the MBA world or in the academic world. It's, uh, it's like the core of a business that people can either identify with or not identify with. And in South Africa, the core of a lot of our businesses are old white male Afrikaans businesses. Mm. So at the core, then a young male Afrikaans person will come in and have a better degree of identity than a young black person. And then there's kind of a distance socially and emotionally, which you will never understand because mm. you just think that, ah, you know, Sipo is not, uh, is not, is not part of the team because he's not coming. He just doesn't identify with the core of the business. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's fundamental things people are not solving. And, uh, at the end of the day, Sipo doesn't get the opportunity because, ah, uh, he's not a team player. He's never, you know, there when you're doing, uh, when you go to the bushes and we try and, you know, hunt. He's not into hunting, you know. So there's a lot of stuff that then comes down the line as a result of that fundamental thing is that we're not transforming the core of these businesses and therefore we're going to frustrate young, uh, especially the black talent in, in, in the economy. And we know they're very demanding, the Absolutely. millennials. So let's shift gear a little bit maybe um, and talk about you, uh, Musa the man. Um, I think, yeah, you know, we, we've had chat on these topics for a long time, but yes. let's talk a little bit. I mean, you've authored a book, yes. you're a speaker, you're an entrepreneur, you've done some M&A, you've worked in corporate. How old are you? Uh, I'm turning 33 in May. Okay. So, I mean, you, you, <laughs> you're still very young and you, and you've done so much. Um, and you, you talk about young people. <laughs> um, I mean, you've won the medal. You were on the medal guardian, you know, top 200 young people to look out for. Mm. Maybe tell us a little bit about what motivates you to want to continue to achieve so much, um, when you've done already a lot in a very short period of time. And and maybe also just tell us about who you are as a person. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know that question. Ask my wife. <laughs> no, that's that's an interesting question. So I've the one thing that I have always done is I've been relentlessly focused, uh, relentlessly focused on adding value, whatever situation I'm in. So my personal relationships, my you know work engagements, the projects that I work on, the people's lives that I'm in, I'm like obsessed with this concept of value because if you're not adding value, then what are we what are we doing? Like why are we here? Um, and the last couple of years of my life have been me trying to figure out where I best fit in the value chain for a lot of things. Um, first, it was as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur. Second, it was in the corporate space. Can I add value in that space? If I add value, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, and am I better placed being in here or being in, 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 uh, in an entrepreneurial setup? Um, I've had lots of kind of internal reflections about what I'm all about now based on, based on that. And, and, and I'm getting closer to articulating it. Um, and essentially, there's, there's a principle which I, which I talk about when I do my keynotes. Um, it's called the it's called the Kalenga conundrum, right? Uh, I've done a lot of research to try and understand my two passions, which is which is technology and and people. Um, and I looked at data that shows there's a there's a law that's called Moore's law. Yeah. And Moore's law, for those that don't know, essentially is the principle that a microchip will double in its capacity size every single year. So you'll be able to store a lot more in a smaller space over years and years and years, right? So that's why cell phones have gotten smaller, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the Moore's law, um, essentially, if you look at the graph, it like becomes like almost a straight line because technology just accelerates and it just goes to infinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the flip side, if you look at uh, what they call the Human Development Index, which 
which is an index that is uh, there's a there's a study released every single year that says how are we doing about the state of humanity? Yeah. Um, what is uh, what is the standpoint relating to health, education, access, income, all those kind of things? So they've got an index which is between zero and one that says on that starter you can indicate how well you're doing. So as an example, Sub-Saharan Africa is do, is it sitting at 0.5 percent of um, of the index, which is the lowest. Um, you look at uh, Latin America and Europe, which are not point not uh, 0.8 percent, which is the highest. So between 0.5 and 0.8, there's a bit there's a big gap, which means in between there are gaps in education, there are gaps in income, there are gaps in all that kind of stuff. What's happening with that line? It's also actually going up. You know, so there's lots of data that says the human condition is getting better. Okay. The nuance is that the human condition is getting better at an incremental rate. Okay. So it's slow, the rate at which is getting better is slowing. Exactly. Uh, Versus the rate at which technology is getting better is exponential. Okay. So I'm going, why is that? Surely, you, you know, the, the, the graph of technology should be lifting the human condition. I can tell you why. Right? It's yep. because the robots are taking over. <laughs> well, this, but if they're taking over, we should be able to, to make human lives better. Absolutely. Right? So we can send people to the moon, but we can't feed people on Earth. Yeah. Right? So, so I've started to try and frame what I'm about now because that for me is the conundrum. The conundrum is technology is getting better. Things are happening and it's amazing. But the human condition is just not shifting. Mm. So I'm vesting my life in trying to create businesses that solve that problem. Is that as we are lifting from a technology perspective, we need to raise the bar from a human development index perspective. And and that's what I'm trying to do and, and that's one of the businesses we've started in the in the small business space and uh, one of my partners works in the education space as well. And our next solution we're going to try and crack is in the health space. So that's Fantastic. That's what I'm about now. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and is this uh, Kalenga conundrum, is that covered in your book? Um, no, your book is called Ladders and Trampolines. Yeah, Ladders. The Kalenga conundrum is coming in, in the second book. It's <laughs> the second book. Yeah. So, so, so what do we talk about? What do you talk about in, in the current book? I mean, what are the concepts that you want to, you know, the readers to grasp? Yeah. I'm um, coming you know, going through this literature. Yeah, so the title is quite literal, Ladders and Trampolines, because the, the the common thread throughout the book is that most people will always ever be faced with two choices. The One choice is a ladder choice, the second choice is a trampoline choice. A ladder choice is the incremental route. So when you're 25 years old and they ask you to come and be the group head of digital marketing at a bank, um, you could say, no, I can't because I don't believe in myself, or no, I can't, I don't have the skills, which is typically what some people would do. Or you could just jump onto the trampoline and get to the next level. Yeah. Um, so the principle is looking at some of my experiences throughout life and going there sometimes I made wrong choices and I made good choices and the difference between the wrong choice and the good choices is that the good choices were trampolines that gave exponential growth whether it was income prof- profile portfolio whatever you call it um, whereas a, a, tra- a ladder choice typically is kind of just the next step you know you're going you're a great junior manager junior manager se- junior senior senior junior then you're a senior manager then you're, you can go that route yeah. but in one it's the same energy the same concept can take you you know right to the top so that is coined as the title and that's typically the, the thread throughout the book. It's just anecdotes and funny yeah. things that have happened in my life that I've and, observed. <laughs> and I asked you, um, as we're preparing for the show, whether you wrote the book and you said you typed every single letter. Every single letter. So I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah. And the book is available in stores. People can go get it. Yeah. Out there. Available everywhere. Exclusive books, uh, noobs, all of them. CNA have got them and also online. So if you want to get it from uh, Amazon or, or iTunes, you can get it there as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there shouldn't be a reason why you can't access it. Fantastic. Yes, and, sir. And what next? So what, what's the next big thing? 
Sure. The next big thing is I want to change. Uh, I want to change how small medium businesses access new markets. Um, I want to fundamentally open that up. I think it's uh, at the moment there's huge challenges for small businesses across the board: access to resources, access to capital, and the other fundamental one is access to new markets. So, um, if we can get someone who makes a great product sitting in Shoshanguve to sell it to someone that sits in uh, the Dongmang district in China, that's the way we need to go. Um, so, I'm trying to figure out how we can open up access for small medium businesses. Um, online okay fantastic um thanks musa so just really for the listeners if they wanted to get in touch with you if they wanted to maybe engage you further on some of these topics yeah how would they go about doing that yeah on uh, my social platforms uh, are uh, active and very much uh, available so musa kalenga m-u-s-a-k-a-l-e-n-g-a that's on twitter facebook linkedin um and then uh, my, my website www.kalenga.me um there's a bunch of content on there there's a lot of articles that are published and that kind of thing and then my youtube channel um when i do talks and that kind of stuff will be will be all up on there as well okay great yeah and i know you were holding back on us there because you know you told me a little bit about what your business is going to do but <laughs> i'm guessing you don't want to share that now yeah not so we're going to get you back then to to come chat to us once you've launched um just to give people an idea of you know the things that you're doing around disruption and how you continue to incorporate that into everything you do with absolutely because pleasure. i think the message is to say it's not all about coming up with the next great innovation mm. you know it could be just about how you perceive yourself absolutely. In, in the context of the environment and the challenges or opportunities that the environment presents absolutely absolutely on the money and as i said happy to come back and chat about that and and, and uh, share that with your listeners once it's ready fantastic thank yes. you musa absolutely thank pleasure. you for joining Thanks us for chat again soon cheers brother ciao and we're back live um, from the Cliff Central Studios. Um, that was a very interesting, intriguing conversation with, uh, with Musa Kalenga. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, people often come to me and when we talk about disruption is they assume that I'm going to talk about an app or I'm going to yeah. talk about the next big technological, um, you know, uh, solution to some very simple problem, you know, and... I think the message is that it's not really about the technology because that's just a conduit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, and, and that's what came across very strongly in this discussion is that it's really about the way in which you approach the world that you operate in and your approach to problem solving. And in effect, that's really what we're going to unearth on this show is to look at how some of the captains and leaders in industry have taken a disruptive mindset or a value creation mindset based on uh, Musa's input. Um, towards this challenge of um, how do we become more disruptive and do things mm-hmm. differently. Um, you know, I give simple examples of things before even Uber, before these wonderful apps came up, you know, simple innovations like uh, Please Call Me, which, which was very topical. I yeah. mean, that, that was very disruptive. Yeah. Um, born here in South Africa, um, born by whom, that's still a debate in the courts. But, but the reality is that that's something that couldn't have easily been conceived anywhere else. Because it was dealing with a problem that existed specifically here um, and that was solved specifically here. And so when we talk about disruption, it's about those elegant solutions to everyday problems and, and how um, you know, some of the people that are leaders in business today um, engage themselves um, in terms of their companies, uh, in terms of their corporates to address those problems. Yeah. 
Um, just, you know, also interesting, you know, looking at Moses' profile, the mix between, you know, the corporate and the entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurship. Um, and then um, also the fact that he's done his MBA, but he's also kind of been through the school of hard knocks. And also, can we talk about how he got, um, he was a chartered doctor at such a, like a young age. Yeah. He even did say in his book that he was not even allowed. He had to go and do interviews after interviews until he was given the platform to actually go through with the whole process. So so it's really, really impressive. Yeah, and I also good. love how he's he talks about be adding value, not just being disruptive for the sake of being disruptive, but actually adding value, which is awesome. It's amazing. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And then I also see um, he wrote a book, and you've read the book. I, I unfortunately haven't been as disciplined as you, Kels. Um, just share, I mean, the book. What, what did you gather from the book, just getting into his head? You know what? The book is literally what this interview is about. Yeah. If you listen to this interview and you enjoy it, listening to Musa, you need to read that book. He really takes you through a journey of his career and what he had to go through. And it's it's called Letters and Trampoline. And then he also talks about on how some people just jump on a le- um, trampoline and they make it. And some people have to go through the process and the stages of your career moving the corporate um, world. So it's a really, really interesting take. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Um, so looking forward to our next show, um, we'll be having a very senior executive from one of the corporates in South Africa. Um, we will be sharing that information as the week unfolds, um, on our social media. Um, who'll be joining us in the studio to, to have a conversation about disruptive and really looking at it now, um, in terms of the, the corporate world and how, um, some of the big corporates are going about Positioning themselves and preparing themselves to operate in this very digitalized world, um, and will engage in, in quite a, I think, um, interesting conversation. We're spending a lot of time on our side preparing for that because we want to get as many gems as possible out of the conversation. Um, and then in the following week, we'll be looking then at someone from the academic space as well who'll be joining us. Um, so really looking at to say how are the, you know, all these schools you talk about, whether it's Vits or Gibbs or Unisa, so all these business schools, how are they re? positioning themselves to prepare leaders in business for a disruptive world because, you know, those traditional um, MBAs and all these wonderful courses that people go to, I don't know if they're still 100% relevant and effective um, given this very fast-paced disruptive world that we operate in. So we'll be be tackling that as well, looking at the the academic space. Um, So thank you very much. I think we're done for today. Um, Join us next week. Yeah, join us next week. Um, Same time, we really look forward to seeing you here on Disrupt with Mpumin Tlapo. Well, that's me. Um, before we go, just once again, thank you to our sponsors, T-Systems, for um, enabling this platform for us. And we really look forward to having a discussion with you again next week. Have a wonderful day. Cliffcentral.com.